going to be in Matthew 28 this morning. As we come to our final installment, I guess you could call it, in our series on healing. Since January, we've been in this series. Uh, we began by looking at the ultimate healing in the book of Revelation. Uh, and then we went back and looked at the ministry of Jesus specifically. And throughout his ministry, Jesus announced the kingdom of God. The kingdom that would be the Lord's definitive desire for his creation. This kingdom would have Jesus as its king, his followers as its citizens, and it would be characterized by forgiveness and healing. By bringing together people of all different nationalities into one kingdom where they would share in the love and mercy and grace of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the people of this kingdom would not build a military to conquer other kingdoms. They would not overpower their enemies with weapons and such. They would win them over with love. And they would be not only the messengers of Jesus and his kingdom, but also the ones bringing the Lord's forgiveness and healing to the world. Beginning at Pentecost, we see this unfold all through the rest of the New Testament. People were healed. Their various needs were met and dealt with. It, it began with the Jewish people, but it spread quickly as the disciples remembered how Jesus had healed the Roman centurion's child and had cast demons out of the two Gentiles across the Sea of Galilee and had healed the daughter of the Canaanite. Grace was being extended to everyone. Their deepest needs were being met on physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional levels. Now, we have a tendency to read these stories and think they were amazing, but that kind of thing doesn't really happen now. Paralyzed people don't get up and walk. Blind people don't see, they don't get their sight back. People don't rise from the dead. Most folks now don't even believe in demons of any sort. Or, or they, if they do, it's their, them demonizing people they disagree with, right? No, we seem to have lost the Holy Spirit. The part of God promised to all of us who trust in Jesus doesn't seem to have a very active role in all of our lives. Outside of ensuring our salvation and sort of punching our ticket to heaven, we don't turn to the very present part of God sent not just to inhabit us, but to empower us. To give us the ability to experience forgiveness and healing ourselves and to continue carrying out God's mission uh, the mission of God's kingdom by bringing forgiveness and healing to everyone else. The mission that Jesus talked about throughout his ministry. The mission that he launched the day he walked out of the tomb having conquered death. And that brings us to our text for this morning. Today we are going to look at the resurrection of Jesus. We do this every year at this time as a means of remembering and showing our gratitude 
We come together and worship our risen and reigning King. And this morning has been no different and will continue to be no different. But as we read the passage and dig into it this morning, we're going to focus on how resurrection brings the ultimate healing and how Jesus brought the end into the middle. And hopefully that will make uh, more sense as we go along. We're also going to see that even though it's meant to bring unity, this also brings about division. And hopefully that will make more sense as well. So we're going to unpack everything. Uh, follow along with me. We're going to read beginning in Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath toward the dawn, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money, and they did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, so, for a little context, at the end of chapter 27, which is just before this, Matthew had related how the religious leaders, the, the Jewish chief priests and Pharisees and Sadducees, all of them, they had gathered with Pilate, and they had set a guard on the tomb. They believed some of the disciples would take Jesus' body and then claim he had risen. The Pilate agreed to allow it, but then he told them that they had guards and to use their own guards to do, to do the job, basically. So they assigned several of their temple guards to stand watch over the tomb until after the third day. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 28. Now, as we have seen, Matthew wrote in a particular Way. His goal was to tell the story in a way that related the theological points behind everything that was going on. As we begin chapter 28, he mentioned that what happened was after the Sabbath, toward dawn on the first day of the week. Now, this is more than a simple timekeeping detail. Matthew was drawing a parallel between the events unfolding and what had happened in the creation narrative of Genesis 1. In the story of creation, God completed his work on the sixth day and then rested. We call that the Sabbath. 
Jesus also completed his work on the cross on the sixth day. And then on the Sabbath, he rested. And the parallel is meant to reveal Jesus as God, as being exactly who he said he was. And this echoes what John did in the first chapter of his gospel when he wrote that the Word was with God and the Word was God when referring to Jesus. And he also related that everything was made through him. Now I know that most, if not all of us, believe this, that we accept it as true. We acknowledge God as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But part of what this necessarily means is that what we see in Jesus is the character and nature of God. That Jesus becomes the lens through which we look at every other mention of God in the scriptures. And Paul echoed this reality in Colossians 1, 15-16, when he wrote that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And when Paul called Jesus the image of the invisible God, he was saying what Matthew said here. And this is echoed also in, in Hebrews 1.3, where we read that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What this means is that our understanding of who God is should be shaped by what we see in Jesus. That when we read any other passage in Scripture about God, we should read that passage with Jesus in mind. For example, when we read a story like the flood, like the story of Noah's Ark, it's easy to see a fiery, angry God flooding the earth to destroy everyone. But is that consistent with what we see in Jesus as we read the Gospels? Now, I was raised to believe in an angry God. A God who was pretty fed up with humanity in general and all our problems. A God ready to strike us down at a moment's notice if we messed up. I had this notion in my head that he had lightning sort of shooting out of his eyes because he was so mad at us all the time. I mean, I was a kid, but that's kind of how I saw him. He was especially mad at me because I was the worst, right? Uh, I had this, uh, this whole thing. I was telling uh, Ellie earlier that I used to throw rocks at cars outside the front of the church. Like, I was a bad kid, right? And so I had this idea that God was just after me. He was just after me. When I actually met God for the first time, down in Big Ben, told the story, Southland, part of what I heard God say to me was that he wasn't that God. That he'd been misrepresented by the church that I grew up in. The church I had walked away from. The church whose God I had walked away from. But when the Lord spoke to me, I was challenged to discover who this God really was. So I spent the next couple of years reading through the Bible front to back. I desperately wanted to know who this God was, and what I found in Jesus echoed what I had heard up in the mountains. According to Isaiah 42.3, the Messiah would not break a bruised reed or quench a faintly burning candle, both of which are meant to display his gentle kindness and humility. 
In Matthew 11, 29, Jesus claimed he was gentle and humble in heart. And according to John 13, Jesus washed the feet of his followers. And according to 1 Peter 2, 23, Jesus did not revile or utter threats. And we could go on and on like this. There's so many passages. The point is that the Jesus we meet in the Gospels and beyond is not an angry, vengeful God of fiery wrath like the one that I grew up believing in. Jesus is life and light and love. And nowhere is this clearer than when he was crucified and then resurrected. He didn't bring death. He suffered it. And then he defeated it. And the implications of this are huge. Because in Jesus we find out just what God is really like. And what we find is that instead of a burning desire to strike us down for all our sins, he showed up as one of us to suffer alongside us and to heal us. Not to condemn us, but to make us whole. We probably all know John 3.16 pretty well, by heart, most of us, that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is strong enough by itself, but in the very next verse, John wrote that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. God is not in the business of sickness and death. God is in the business of healing and life. And this is the parallel Matthew wanted us to see. And it also seems like we're meant to understand the Sabbath rest as a means of healing. Jesus was crucified, he was buried, he rested on the Sabbath, and then he was resurrected on the first day of the which seems to point to Sabbath as being part of how we are healed as well. Now, our culture has no real concept of this, right? Of Sabbath rest. Instead, it's just 24-7, go, 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 always doing something, always on our screens, always busy, always having something else to do to occupy our time. But what if we still need Sabbath? I'm not saying it has to be Sunday. But just Sabbath, just rest. What if it's the key to healing for us? To slow down, to take a day off, and just relax. What if we're missing out on the healing God offers us in Jesus because we refuse to do this? If Jesus rested on the Sabbath before being resurrected, how can we expect to experience the healing of resurrection power in our lives doing the same. I could probably talk about our need for Sabbath rest for the next few hours, uh, but that's a topic we might have to spend more time with this fall. We might launch into a series on Sabbath this fall. For now, let's focus on the story Matthew told. So Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. According to the other Gospels, Jesus had been buried sort of quickly, and the women didn't have a chance to bring the traditional spices and all of that for burial. 
And as we've seen, Matthew's method of storytelling doesn't exactly follow a straight linear path. Uh, even when he gives details, they're more for their theological impact than anything else. Based on the Greek, it seems as if the earthquake happened before the women arrived. Uh, in the versions told by Mark, Luke, and John, the women arrived to find the stone already moved. Matthew brings this out differently because he was making a different point. He was comparing the women with the guards, contrasting how they reacted to the angel and the empty tomb. Now, the guards fell down in fear and were as dead men. Maybe they fainted. Maybe they were plain dead. We don't know for sure, but their reaction was definitely not the same as the women. Now, the women and the guards were afraid of the angel. Both of them were afraid. But where the guards fell down and trembled in fear, probably thinking they were going to be destroyed by this being, the women listened. And this serves as another one of Matthew's reversals. We've seen him doing this all through this series. He just flips things and the expectation on its head. And this is one of them. The big, tough guards fell down in a heap, whereas the gentle, meek women stood and received the announcement of the good news. This reveals that God tends to work through the least likely people, bringing the gospel message to the disciples and then the world by first giving it to these women. The message is all about healing. Even though that's not the word the angel used. But when the angel said, he is not here, he is risen, he was announcing the greatest healing of all. The healing that would change everything. The healing that would embolden the disciples as they carried the good news into all the world. They would no longer fear death because Jesus had defeated it by walking out of the tomb. The ultimate healing had begun. And it would spread to every corner of the earth. And when we think of the good news of Jesus, the, the gospel message, we probably imagine going to heaven when we die and then being reunited with loved ones who have passed on, getting to see everybody again. But this healing isn't just for the sweet by and by. It's also for here and now. We know this because in the wake of Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit was actively working in the lives of the first Christians to bring about forgiveness and healing, the two major characteristics of the kingdom of God. And that means when Jesus was resurrected, the power of sin and death was broken. That sin and sickness would no longer have power over us. That we wouldn't be confined to any diagnosis or disease. That whether we are actively healed or not, our faith in Jesus and the resurrection would overpower the fear and uncertainty it might bring. That we would trust in Jesus and lean into his resurrection power through the Holy Spirit within us. And that our physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional needs would be met in the hope of the resurrection. Now think about what that means. It may not mean that everything is going to be perfect now. But we know that it will be. And that hope in what is coming shifts our perspective in the face of what is here and now. 
We may suffer, and probably will. But we know Jesus suffered alongside us as one of us, and that our suffering is not meaningless. That we are growing through every moment. That when we hurt, we know that Jesus has also hurt. That when we are betrayed, we know that he was betrayed as well. That when we are desperate and want the Father to do things differently, Jesus has been there too, asking for the cup to pass from him. That like Jesus, we may have to face something terrible, but on the other side, we will be victorious. Amen. Sin and sickness will not have the final word in our lives. Death and disease are not the ultimate power in this universe. But when we have mental and emotional breakdowns, we can still trust that God will hold us. I was talking with Arlene about this before the service, about how Alzheimer patients can still remember old hymns. God is still holding them. The Father will never let us go. He will never leave or forsake us. This was promised first in Deuteronomy 31.6 where Moses said to the people of Israel, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave or forsake you. It's a promise God reiterated in Joshua 1.9 saying, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Even in the New Testament, in Romans 8, 38-39, Paul said, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. The angel at the tomb didn't use all these words, didn't say all this, when telling the women about Jesus. But this is the meaning of what he said. It was about a healing that, it wasn't about a healing that would come someday, but a healing that had already begun. A healing that is available right now because God didn't wait till the end to make it available. As a result of the empty tomb, we don't just have to hope for what happens when we die. We have hope for what happens right now. Because the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that inhabits us. The Holy Spirit is present and active in our lives. We just have to accept the diagnosis and the treatment. It's like at a doctor's office. If the doctor comes in and tells us we have a certain problem and the cure is taking a certain medication or having a certain surgery or whatever, do we walk away from that and think, man, I'm not giving that kind of control of my life? That would be silly. But this is what happens with Jesus, right? He's told us what the problem is. It's sin. And that the cure is death and a resurrection. But we seem to think that he only means at the end of our lives when the truth is that he means right now. We need to die to ourselves right now. 
Confess and be forgiven right now. Know the love of Jesus right now. And enjoy the resurrection power of God right now as we experience physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional healing. Because the healing Jesus offers is available right, right now to all of us, to everyone, anyone who will recognize their desperate situation and ask. It's already begun, which sounds great until we lose someone to Alzheimer's or dementia. Or a drunk driver plows into someone we love on the road and they don't survive. Or we find out that we have cancer. Or the hurt we have been carrying around doesn't just disappear. What if we've been battling depression for years and can't seem to get our heads above water? What then? How are, to, how are we to understand healing in light of all of these situations? And what good is the resurrection if all of this is still going on? I ask these questions all the time. And I won't pretend that I have all the answers because I don't. I probably have more questions than answers, honestly. But I do trust in the promise and in the presence. Even when my back is so tight and hurts so much that I can't lay down in the bed and I end up sleeping in a chair, because that happens. Even when I feel like my doubts are getting the best of me. Even when I have anxiety, anxiety about not fitting in. Even when I think about my broken relationship with my dad who passed away. In spite of all these things, I still trust in the promise and the presence. And that leads us to verse 9. The women were doing what the angel had said. They were on their way to tell the disciples. And then Jesus showed up. And in Matthew's account, he said, greetings. Almost sounds casual, right? Hey, what are y'all doing here? But the word he used there is kario, which means to rejoice or be glad. But it was also used as a way of saying hello. It's the way a lot of languages are, right? And it's some, it, it actually comes from the same Greek root word for grace. But to be honest, Jesus wasn't Greek. And even if he knew Greek, he almost certainly spoke in Hebrew or Aramaic when he greeted these women. And the word he would have said to them is, Shalom. It may be pronounced a little differently in Aramaic. I think it's Shoma or Shlomo. But in both languages, the word means peace. And in both cultures, it carries a much more meaningful connotation, something bigger than that. As we've talked about before, it, the word shalom, it actually means everything as it should be. Even when used as a greeting, shalom, the weight of that meaning is present. You're wishing that everything would be as it should be with this person. Hope everything is well with you. Right? And these women, they would have understood it that way. Even as they excitedly fell before Jesus and, and touched his feet, they would have heard the word ringing in their ears, shalom, peace, everything is as it should be. The big tough guards had fallen 
before the angel in fear. These women fell before Jesus out of love and gratitude. And Jesus told them, do not be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Then he encouraged them to continue with what they had been asked to do. But, but think about what he said to them for a sec. Jesus basically told these women, everything is as it should be. You don't have to be afraid. Then he told them to tell the others. And that was part of the story they told the disciples. We know because it ended up in the book, right? But you can almost picture them nearly breathless after running to where the disciples are hiding. We saw Jesus. He's alive. He said, Shalom. And he told us not to be afraid. The rest of verse 9 reveals that in the moment they'd worshipped him. And I think this is another key to healing. Not that we have to worship in order to be healed, but I mean, we know the Roman centurion certainly didn't worship Jesus. We didn't see that anywhere in that story. Uh, he didn't fall on the ground before him and kiss the ground, touch his feet, anything like that. But to experience the full effect of the healing power offered to us in the resurrection of Jesus, I think that comes partially through worship. Because worship draws us close to him relationally. And relational proximity is how his healing is released in us. When we worship and draw close to the Lord, it's like taking a dose of medicine. I mean, how many times have you entered into worship and then come out on the other side and worship? When we enter into worship, our bodies respond in amazingly positive ways. I did some, some looking and some research, and they didn't know any of this back then, of course, uh, but worship actually releases chemicals in our brains that cause us to feel connected to God and to each other. There's studies at the University of Pennsylvania and Westmore College, and I can't name all the different ones. I read a bunch of different ones. But like when we spend time contemplating God and the things of God, the parts of, our, of the brain that control our mood are altered in positive ways. Even when we pray, our body releases dopamine, causing us to experience joy. In other words, built into every aspect of a worshipful life are all these amazing health benefits. But as much good as Sabbath and worship do for us, they are both a choice that we have to make. If we want to experience the healing power of the resurrection that we're talking about, we need to make these things a regular part of our lives. Otherwise, we end up like the religious leaders who rejected Jesus, the ones who instigated and then were front and center at his crucifixion, the ones who knew, they knew he was doing real miracles. They said so. The ones who knew that he was bringing healing just as the prophets had promised that the Messiah would. And even though he forgave them from the cross, they still rejected him. Even when the guards showed up to tell them that an angel had appeared and rolled away the stone, they still rejected him. In verses 11 through 15, we see this unfold. As the guard went to the chief priest and told them what happened, to which they responded by paying the soldiers to stay quiet and not tell anyone. 
Instead, they were instructed to tell people that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body while they slept. This, this council of religious leaders, the very folks who should have been completely convinced by all of this, hardened their hearts against Jesus. And this is the danger of ignoring and rejecting the resurrection of Jesus. It prevents someone from experiencing God's resurrection power and the forgiveness and healing that come with it. Again, it's like refusing to take the medicine that can heal us. But the reality is that we don't like the diagnosis. We don't like how helpless we really are. We don't like how much we need Jesus. But this morning, things can be different. Because the resurrection power of Jesus that brings the ultimate healing, it's still available to each and every one of us. We can still experience healing on physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional levels. Anyone can come to Jesus and experience the forgiveness and healing he offers. Anyone can become a citizen of his kingdom. That's part of the joyous message we hear echoing down the years from the empty tomb all the way into this new creation that we are a part of where our Savior and King defeated death and the grave and has made his ultimate healing available to everyone. Will you pray with me?